Oh my gosh, y'all, it's the first podcast with River in the room, so you may hear some chomping. I am pleased as punch to welcome Jeff Parker to the podcast. Hey, Hello! That's me! Hi! So we've been talking a little bit before we started recording. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, yeah. since you are so amazing with your voice and dialect work, can you tell where I'm from in the Midwest and can you tell what speech impediment I had seven years of therapy for? No, because I wasn't. I wasn't asking myself that question. No, that no, I just wanted. I was like curveball. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm looking at your oral posture. Yeah. I'm looking oh my at your gosh. Jaw height. I'm yep. seeing where your tongue mm-hmm. is resting. <laughs> and I'm now reflecting back on our conversation to reflect back on what I would call the thought lot cloth words, um, which tells me. Man, I'm not landing on anything here. I, I just came from a doctor's appointment where I had someone very clearly from Illinois, um, uh, who I actually mislabeled as Michigan, but apparently she's like right there. Um, <laughs> because it's so, the Midwest lot thought cloth merger is not something you have in your speech. Um, in terms of speech impediments, again, I would be just guessing because you have a slightly tighter jaw height that it may have been something to do with tongue placement? Yep. I had a really bad list. That was actually where I was I basically heading. sounded like Chucky e. Finster for... until I was like 12 years old and I had my oh, adoids wow. taken out. Oh, yeah. and that helped? It helped with the nasally bit. Yeah. But I had not only in-school speech therapy, but also two to three sessions a week outside of school. Wow. Yeah. 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 So I was yeah. getting... I was, that, that's where I was headed for that. As far as where you're from... Boy, howdy, I'm literally shooting in the dark when I say my, my heart tells me Nebraska, but that doesn't sound right. So Wisconsin. Say, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. I'm, it only comes out if I'm a little drunk or excited. Yeah. And then I'll be like... On Old Milwaukee or PBR. Oh, my, my favorite or one is, oh, we're going to go have, we're gonna have some bars in the church basement. Ah, lovely. <laughs> oh, sure, you betcha. So then you must have been in hog heaven with Kate Gleason's uh, Minnesota accent in Murder on the Orient oh, Express. Oh, this is, what a fantastic so and finessed transition. That was all her, I cannot way. wait to go back. It's rare that I want to go see a show again. I know I want to see that show again at least... I would go see it again at least four times if I could afford it. I am making excuses to go every two weeks. Yeah, because uh, you need to ch- check the dialect work, That's right? Exactly you need it. to check the dialect work. Exactly. The dialect work, the dialect work. Exactly. But yeah, really, yeah, I just yeah. want to see it again. Um, and I went back actually two weeks ago, and the, some of the accents had gotten better, which really speaks to the mastery of the actors. But yeah, it's when I'm coaching, normally when a show gets ready to open, I'm also ready to go, yeah. And I'm done. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank thanks. you and good this night. This has been really fun. Thank you. There's something really magical about this show specifically, yes, right? I agree. I, I was so anxious to get my laptop out of my face and just, just dive in. watch it. Can I ask, so like, I just think like Kevin Rich is my Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, so um, is Professor Rich. And I love yes. that he talks about actors being empathy Jedis. Mm, um, does he really? He he said that once in a meeting. I don't know if it's a thing that he says a lot, Whoa. but like that is like carved on my soul yeah. now. You know, yeah. um, what was it like to work with? Because this is the thing that kills me is yeah. he help, he is one of the most generous humans you will ever meet. Mm-hmm. Kindest, unassuming, smartest, yeah. silent but deadly kind of humans, huh. and. Um, I, up until lately, have felt not super confident in my Shakespeare. And so Mm. I remember both for my Arvada Center 
callbacks because there's callback for Lysander and Puck in Midsummer, and then oh, who did Jake play? McQueen, McQueen yeah. in Mid um, Orient Express, yeah. and then <clears throat> you know the lesbians in Small Mouth Sounds. Sure, you know funky lesbian is kind of my type. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I went in to work the sides with him, yeah. and he always takes the time. And so he not only worked those sides, but then he worked my puck. And some apparently I'm puckish, but not uh, I'm like almost puckish. But maybe next time around, I'm just oh. happy to be called in for two for that role in two theaters of that caliber. That's yeah. I must be doing something right. Um, but puck and lavash for CSF. And, like, to be so quiet and unassuming, because I totally would have been like, oh, my gosh, me too, I'm called back. But, like, he worked, he worked those queen sides with me, and I had no idea he was really? being considered for Arvada. And he got, <clears throat> he got one of the roles I was called back for. He got Lavash in CSF. And oh. so I'm like, if I'm being called in for the same stuff Kevin Rich is getting called in for, like... Something is aligning. Something yeah. is aligning. So can you just tell me what it was like to work with him specifically? Yeah, that's, because that's my favorite. dad never read me children's books. He read me Sherlock Holmes and he read me Agatha Christie. And so I have fallen in love with Hercule Poirot since I was eight or nine years old. Mm. And so to see a living embodiment of my childhood hero by my real-life mentor, yes. I think made it really special. And then also just Jeff with the frickin' chairs. Oh Those gosh, transitions right? were magical. Musical theater. Yes! Yeah, I now loved you, it. Now you talk for a while. Well, oh, well, you, I love that category because I will sing Kevin Richards' praises all day. Um, I actually came from the other end. I... I was not the biggest Hercule, Hercule Poirot fan um, until about a year or so ago, and I saw the Branagh version and went, oh, this is interesting. And then I went back and tracked the Finney and tracked the others and thought, well, this is an interesting fellow, but I don't feel like I know him yet because although Suchet is close, he doesn't really let you in by design. Um, Do you think, I think Hercule Poirot either has OCD or Asperger's. Oh, I think he must. He right? Must. He has to be twice exceptional in some way. He's neurodivergent, certainly. Right? Certainly. I mean, like, even if it's just our headcanon murdery oh, yeah. right here, there is so much proof. And when you watch, and you might have caught it all your first time, but every time I go back and see the show... Kevin stims. He does mm -hmm. stimming with his fingers. He does and he joint compression. Just little, every little thing on every little cart and make sure everything's even. Yeah. And even in the scenes where he's on stage and sort of just listening in the corner. I watch him instead of anyone. I mean, yeah. it's no shade to the other actors, no, but it's a he's fabulous so, company. he just is Poirot. And that's what I was going to get to is he's the one who made me go, oh, he's lonely. Poirot is yeah. lonely. Poirot is pained. Poirot is, is searching for something. And, and which isn't to say that that's the central tenet of Kevin's performance. He's, but it's there. It's rich and layered and uh, heartbreaking and funny and sharp. Um, it's, I think I posted this on Facebook, but he's my favorite Poirot. It's my favorite iteration of Same, the Same, too, because, like, I... You spend time with people, and you're like, I'm just... Is this just me fan-personing out really hard? And so I was right? really excited that I had you that a little had bit the too. same thought. Because I was like... Like, I, I think it is my favorite live single... My favorite single live performance by a performer I know. Wow, 
yeah. That I've seen in my lifetime, and I have wow. seen thousands of, sh- well, sure. hundreds, if not thousands of shows by now. Right. And you know, every moment in the room was just filled with generosity and grace and professionalism and just so much talent. I think that's because Jeff's at the helm? Well, I think, I think they got a good company. And I think, um, yeah, Jeff at the helm is, is a great director, but also um, Kevin really set the tone. He came in and, you know, he's, he's, everyone has their work to do, but he's certainly got the through line of the story and the accent, the memorization, mm. the, the character development, the sense of play with the other actors. Um, and perhaps this might not be a surprise to you, very rarely, some actors are resistant to work with coaches, resistant to work with text or dialect coaches. Um, and Kevin was just, give, give me more, give me more. And it's so important that it's a Belgian accent. You know what I mean? Belgian French, no. Right? Like, it's so specific because that's the running joke with him. He is not French. Right. And when I was going back to the Finney version, he's doing Flemish Belgium, which is the tapped R's and the slightly more Dutch version, which um, it's so funny because everyone I talk to goes, oh, are you giving him a Belgian accent? And anytime someone says that, I go, you know, talk to three different people from Belgium. And you're going to hear three different Belgian accents, even if they're from the same city. Because fluency strategies and English language acquisition and how much they speak it all has to do with accent acquisition and design. But also that huge divide between Flemish and Wallonia, uh, Flanders and Wallonia. And so we really had to work very hard to make sure it was distinguished Mm. from Parisian French. Right. Which is also an accent in the show. Uh, And Kevin, you know, he had it really great right away. Um, And then there was just, there's one feature, you know, where the lips have to be in a slightly different position. Because I teach accents through oral posture, Mm, not through mm. going through your script and going, mark that T, mark that W. Because then that gives me performances where people go, oh, I'm going to take a walk through the grass and go to the park. (laughs) And those performances drive me crazy. So um, he really bought into it. Um, he and I share some foundation in Fitzmaurice voice work. We're both certified in that. So we were able to communicate that way. And man, I, I don't think I've had a better time working with a company of actors yeah. uh, since CSF last summer. But I do have to say, uh, you know, no disrespect to any of the other company because they're all fabulous. But Kevin was a delight every minute of it, every single minute. And um, for him to be that hungry for feedback while balancing that line load and that iconic character. And a new baby at home. And a new baby at home. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was one of those where we're always listening, we're always working, we're always readjusting, and then we get into the rehearsal and it's the first time he comes out with a mustache. First time we're in the space. First time the lights are up and his <sighs> accent just goes boom and just locks in. Right. And Do you it, think there was some proprioceptive feedback with the mustache and that posture that we, you're talking about? We were about? being very careful about that. So yeah. we made sure that the mustache is split so that it doesn't so flatten smart. out his lips. So smart. Because yeah. he's, uh, I don't think it's doxing him to say he's from the Midwest. No. And that was part of it is that if the lips are slightly wider, as they are in a Colorado or a Midwestern accent, saying things like you and uh, all of the other things, you have to have the lips quite advanced. And so... Um, we wanted to make sure that he was in that position when the mustache was applied for that proprioceptive feedback. So smart. Well, it worked out. We were very lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, but it was such a great team, and it's, it's so great to have people in that company who, 
you know, Jeff Kent's a director, but he's also an actor. So he's, yeah. he's responsive to those needs. He's worked with coaches before and he's, so we were really able to foster a sense of collaboration and community where everyone knew that I wasn't going to mess with their performance. Right. Um, <clears throat> and that we were going to all be working towards a goal. And I'm pleased as punch with the product. I just, I think the show is so delightful and engaging. Um, and we worked our asses off to get there. Well, people don't realize that, I think this still holds true, <clears throat> it's the Bible in terms of, like, the most copies sold. It's the Bible, Shakespeare, Agatha, Agatha Christie. Christie. 100%. And people don't know it. And I mean, I love... I love Drunk History so much, the show, because yeah. I feel like Derek Waters is one, one in a line of many folks, including, excuse me, you know, Richard O'Brien, um, mm-hmm. Billy Eichner, mm-hmm. uh, who was able to be like, I am a performer, I am a classically trained actor, I'm not quite able to find my niche, so I'm going to build my own thing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, with Drunk History, there's... I mean, they... Every time there's a trans character... Oh, my gosh, Jeff. You know what happens? They hire a trans actor. What? And, 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 there and, are and, trans actors? What? He said and, sarcastically. <laughs> and, in addition, they, they are so inclusive about, like, you could... Okay, so... You could play a white person, you know, like, yeah. person of color. You could play a white person. And their disability episode, they had Allie's... Is it Stoker or Stroker? I think it's Stoker. Stoker, I, I think you're right. wrong. They had Ali Stoker. They had all of these high-profile actors with disabilities. Oh God, I haven't seen that episode. And I'll send it to you. And all these stories are historically accurate. And so, yes, the person is inebriated. But when I teach, when I taught Chicago in American musical theater, you bet your ass I showed them the segment from Drunk History. And I forget who the two, I think Mae Whitman's one of them. And Blake Bell plays Belma Kelly, I think. Oh, my God. Um, Really? But it talks about, I think Rose Byrne plays, it's Rose Byrne or someone very similar to her, plays Maxine, um, the playwright who wrote, the play upon which Chicago was based. Mm. The, the play upon which the musical Chicago was based. Correct, yeah. And, and I'm going to bring in some of Fosse Verdon as well. What a masterpiece that was. Yeah. And oh so, anyway, um, all to say, I have gotten lost in the weeds, but we somehow... Oh, Kirsten Dunst did an Agatha Christie episode because Agatha Christie... Agatha Christie was lemonading her motherfucking husband <laughs> decades before Beyonce was around because he he like wanted to hook up with a secretary or whatever and she was like it is to this day unclear if she had a dissociative break or if she was like I'm just gonna fake my disappearance right and she shows up at a spa pretending not to know who she is. She's brilliant. Oh my god. She's people I don't understand why people more people don't know about her because she's so absolutely brilliant. How <laughs> I like Well, you know there's uh, I completely agree with all that. Uh it's just that we also haven't had a really theatrically powerful potent adaptation of an Agatha Christie play so you in, think a, it's the Ken, in a couple of decades. You think it's, is it Ken Ludwig or Lud- I Ludwig? I always heard it as Ludwig. But I've also heard plenty of people I respect who yeah. know more than me so call this it is, You think it's because it's a new adaptation? I think so. I mean, there's nothing wrong with um, 
I prefer, and then there were none, but often, many companies call it 10 Little Indians. There's Oh, I got to see that on the West End. Oh, yeah. In the front row. Can I interrupt you? And then I will, I will yeah. not, I will stop interrupting for a little bit. But no, we, my junior year of college, we did, uh, we would do a J term. So we did mm-hmm. plays, players, and playhouses. And mm-hmm. um, so, like, went to K- TKTS and... Uh, they're like, oh, we can get you in the front row for like closing night of, and then there were none, or it was just about, and I was like, what? Oh, okay. Oh, why, why don't people want to sit in the front row? <sighs> well, the reason that people didn't want to sit in the front row is when the first person dies at dinner in this production, they had rigged the table to spew vomit. Oh, like, God. It was probably like three gallons of vomit. And, like, some of it landed on my shoe. And it was, like, soaked in vinegar. Sorry. It's very visceral. I should have, right. like, had a content warning on that. I'm just extraordinarily nauseated already. But, so, uh, uh, but yes. That, I'm like, that. well, that's the reason that no one wanted to sit in the front row. <laughs> like, the rich people were like, darling, you have to go to see Agatha Christie's and then they went on. But just make sure you're at least four rows back. Thank you. <laughs> Let those groundlings <laughs> near the stage get the vomit on their shoes. Uh, but, and then there were none. So going back to adaptations of Agatha Christie. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's that there's, there's a lot of them and they're all great. And we've seen most of them. Is there a Miss Marple? You know, the only one I, that can come to mind is the parody, Something's Afoot. Um, that Town Hall did a couple of years ago, and it gets done now and again. As you know what? I am going to. That's something I'm going to work on then. There Maybe that'll be my Marple-esque dissertation. But like, but I mean, Miss Marple, because then if you write a good enough adaptation, you have like a badass role for a woman who's over sixty, which is like super cool. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, I'm a huge Marple fan, and I don't, I don't know because I, I don't know too many adaptations about it. Um, I'm not the biggest murder mystery fan. Um, I'm just, it's just never yeah. been something that Fair. intrigues me. Um, my tastes are a little more espionage in my literature. Okay. And, Who's your uh, favorite Bond? I want to say something hipstery like George Lazenby. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, what it is is that I have a favorite movie for each Bond. Because Pierce Brosnan's great in Goldeneye. He's just not as great in, in Goldeneye. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Daniel Craig in Casino Royale. Oh, magnificent! What a great Bond film. Um, you know, I actually I like the original Casino Royale with Peter Sellers too. But um, every oh, Bond has Peter one good Sellers. movie. Uh, but probably it's tough to beat Connery just because those films have such a. I have a fondness for pre-cell phone espionage genre. I like, I like the dead drops and the notes and the gadgets um, more than the, like, I'm picking up his GPS. Um, yeah, it's not as fun, right? It's not as fun. You lose some of the uh, creativity. So My dad's thing about Bond was, um, like, he, he's Polish, so he's like, I like that they cast Daniel Craig because I like that Bond looks like a Polish plumber. <laughs> that's a great reason too yeah please continue yeah so you know all that is to say is that um i'm not one of the people who's a fan of the show because it's a murder mystery right uh because i find murder mysteries just be a little too formulaic like yeah. i like knives out but i wasn't one of those people going it's magnificent <sighs> it's like ah it's a murder mystery it's fine that's with good actors right yay um this, though, because of the theatrical aspect of it, the, 
the design, I mean, it's, I love Shannon and Jason. They're, they're two of my favorite designers in town. Uh, Jason is my sound designer most of the time when I direct. Uh, but they're, I think, at the top of their game here. I mean, the light and sound is magnificent. Oh my gosh, in, in the round! In the round! In the round! How do you do Murder on the Orient Express in the round? In the round! Jeff Kent figured out a way, and I think he, you know, it, it's, he said this a lot, and I think it's in a lot of our promo material. If you know the story, and you watch this production, you go, oh, that's why those three people yep. are yep. in that transition. Yep. Yep. And if you yep. don't know the story, it's just this theatrical thing, and you get to experience the great, the great twist ending. The, the wonderful twist ending. So good. And it's better in the play than it is in the book. I don't know if you remember the ending of the book, but it kind of just ends. Poirot's like, and I have solved the case. Well, well what's interesting, away. which I feel like Kevin picked up on the thread that Branagh really leaned into. Yeah. Which, so as someone who, is, who has ADHD and autism, rules are so important, right? right? And so I think... For me, the reason that Poirot considers this the most defining case of his career is that he has found a way, he sort of had to step outside himself um, and acknowledge that these were extraordinary circumstances and that he was not meant to be there. Right. Um, I think we're saying enough without giving anything away. Right. <clears throat> it reminds me, I mean... 30 Rock is one of my favorite shows. Yeah. Do you remember they did a Murder on the Orient Express parody? Did they? <gasps> yes! Oh my gosh, how did yeah. I not think of that? And so I'll just, talk, I'll just talk about this. I'll talk about this through Liz Lemon so we don't get any people upset with spoilers. But also, how have you gotten to 2020 and not read Murder on the Orient Express? Shame on you. Um, or even just known the twist. Known the I twist. I mean, I remember sure. my, I was seeing a sign for an Orient Express at Knott's Berry Farm when I was eight and saying, Mom, what's that? Yeah. And she's like, oh, this book where they do this and this and this, and here's the twist. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But um, I'm so sorry to interrupt. Oh, no worries, no worries. Um, Liz Lemon, oh, 30 Rock. Distracted by my dog. Um, very handsome dog. Yes. Uh, yeah, so basically she's, she's having a shitty breakup, or, or her friends are trying to get her to get out and about. And so what they do, you find out it's very Murder on the Orient Express, where at the end she's like, my friends! There is the simple explanation and the complicated explanation. <laughs> like, some of it's almost verbatim from the Christie. Oh, my gosh. I'll have to find this episode and send it your way as well. I will um, always watch 30. I, w- I need to rewatch it. Um, but, yeah, but she's like, it's like this guy. They, like, create this fake nightclub that has, like, boring lighting and a bland menu and... They have her lose her wallet, and so this guy has to pay her, and it's, like, Martha Stewart's former escort, and, like, so it's, like, all this stuff, right, that happens, and uh, all this stuff, and at the end, she's, like, there are these two options, like, it could have, you know, I could have met a handsome stranger, and it could have all unfolded, or... Or... <laughs> and she's like, and I prefer... And I think at the end she says something about me, like, I prefer the simple explanation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's so... It's so iconic. Well, and, and because then it makes the play about not just this one murder, but about what is justice, what is vengeance, what is honor, what yeah. is... And it asks all these really important questions about morality. Yes. And yes. there's all these this great text in there... Um, gosh, I love the last line of the play is, I think, um, 
I'm paraphrasing, but uh, this, this kind of thing keeps me up many nights, and on those nights, yes. it is not until the dawn that I can close my eyes. Yeah, it goes, yes. And, um, and what I love about Kevin's performance especially is it's so funny, yeah. but it's funny that reveals his pain, which is my favorite kind of funny, that Chekhov, that British office. Nanette, Hannah Gatsby. Yeah. yeah, sad yeah. funny is my favorite funny. And um, I think what I love about this is I'm imagining people coming in expecting to just sort of be passively entertained right. by an interpretation of a common story. It's but like, you're, a, you're an accomplice, right? Yes, I think so. I think the theater in the round makes everybody complicit in it. The taking off of the walls, Plus, there's just so many magnificent performances. I mean, yeah. sure, Rich, Kevin Rich should get all the credit in the world, but Kate Gleason is a powerhouse, and Kevin yes. Hart is is working so hard and so smart, and Zach is charming Annie? and evil at the same oh time. Oh my god, Annie Barber's doing fun, fake Hungarian. That's really hard to do. She's we actually powerhouse. very smartly has placed three errors. Or two, sorry, two errors where you can hear her fall out of accent. And it's the as character. For yeah, as a little clue. Yeah. Because every other production does that. Like right. in the Brana version, it's Willem Dafoe, who's proud Poro's like, if you were really this person, you would have said this and this. Yeah. Um, and so, oh, I just gave away a spoiler. Oh, well. It's a 70-year-old book, yeah, like, if not get, get over it, y'all. Yeah. If you're this deep into the podcast and offended, Somebody's I faking can't help you. But, um... We're trying to do that so the audience also gets that Poirot experience of going, ah, ha, ha, I caught you. Yeah. And then gets a reversal to go, oh, yeah. that was planned? That wasn't an accident? <sighs> that was something we put in? So we're trying hard to, with the sound design, with the light design, even with the accent design. And this is one of those cases where we actually had to do some design. Like there had to be flow charts, right? Yeah, because... You know, not to get too deep in the weeds accents here. Accents on accents. But a lot of these accents sound, have similar features. Um, what J.C. Wells would call a fleece kit merger. What we would call a foot goose merger. Uh, tapped R's. Several things that one could even imagine a production where everyone just kind of sounds vaguely European. Um, but it was very important to me that if you knew Hungarian and you knew Russian, you would be able to listen to both of those people and go, yep, yep, those are different accents. Um, my colleague who helped me out uh, at Metro, who helped me out with some of the French, I really wanted to be able to distinguish Belgian French from Parisian French. Yeah. Even though 90% of the audience will just go, oh yeah, he's French, he's French, they're French. Right. Um, specificity is important. There's always going to be one person who appreciates it. There's always going to be at least one person who gets it. Right? And that's the goal. Because it's okay, just like if someone just watches the show and goes, wow, what a, what a fun murder mystery. Right. And there's also some people who are going to go, oh, they're talking about theatricality and it's about uh, involvement of audience. Um, I like multi-layered theater. Uh, we're currently in Tech for Midsummer right now, which is also a fantastic production. Yes. It's going to be a really strong well, this season. Is, well, what I've pitched is, um, and I don't know, I'm working on a bottom, a bottom show right now for me called oh, great. Bottoms, Bottoms Up. <laughs> that, like, it's yes, I love it. about the... Commission, writing process, rehearsal, and performance of Bottom's Dream. Because yeah. he, like, comes out of all of it. Because in my Shakespeare class right now, there's this whole... So in autism, you talk about modeling and masking. And um, it ta she talks... She doesn't mean it in the autistic way, but I coded it as such. But, like, when is, bo when is Bottom really wearing a mask? 
and when is he truly himself? And so I think that's just, it's really interesting. And I'm doing it with, uh, I'm writing with Charles Ewing, who is part of the, the Wits Shakespeare crew, and then also is uh, the DM for our Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, camp- My first campaign that we're on. Is this your first one? It's my first one, is and River, River got to go to the session, and... One one of the other players gifted me with a new pair of dice, like a new set of dice and in a little leopard print bag. Oh my gosh, I can't have it here. What are you playing Um, as? Well, so this is interesting. So I start, have you seen Dragula? No. (gasps) I know. So it's like Drag Race meets Fear Factor. Dear God. And it's on, um, so that's the set, yeah. Because oh, he works at the Wizard's love, Chest. I love the Wizard's Chest. Yeah, I love Ivor, the Ivor. And so, um, so mm. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, so there was an episode of Dragula this season. And this season they opened it up to, um, so the Boulet brothers are fascinating. So they started out as nightlife curators. And they had the show that was a live show, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And they did this podcast with, um, it's, the podcast is called Whimsically Volatile. Mm-hmm. Are you ripping up carpet, babe? She, he is. Hey, yeah, hey, let's make a different me, choice, though. bud. Um, there you go. Whimsically Volatile is, so Katya um, co-hosts it sometimes, but mm-hmm. it's mainly her friend who does it. And so the Boulay brothers came, so they don't do any interviews out of drag really? that are visual, because it's sort of a an Elvira lady bunny thing where you never want to see the people behind the curtain. Um, But yeah, they had this thing and they turned it into uh, a television series and they sort of paid for the first season out of pocket. And um, then to see the growth to this season, which became, it it was trending on both Amazon and Netflix. Like people are so hungry for drag. And so they've always had it open and people don't understand. I mean, like we love Valentina from, Drag Race, they don't realize that her first time out, she won a Dragula competition. Oh, yeah? And so, like, she's a lot darker and scrappier than a lot of people give her credit for. Mm. Um, But, yeah, and I could go down a whole rabbit hole because I just wrote this chapter about trans and non-binary contestants from Drag Race for a Mm -hmm. new book. Um, And I think there's, there's this whole path we could go down through where I think, like, Valentina coming out as non-binary was strategically right before Rent, like, when she was playing Angel. But I think, like, in the best way. Sure. But I'm like, that, that was just a beautiful thing and, like, how you can leverage your coming out to, like, amplify yeah. a story. Yeah. And they actually changed some of Angel's pronouns in that oh, broadcast. How exciting. And then it's also, it's also another thing, too, where she was on Hey Queen and she was talking about, we will get back to Dragula, she was talking about um, how she was not in full voice when they did the dress rehearsal, and they didn't know that the dress rehearsal would be the thing that was going to air, because mm. the guy played Roger uh, broke his ankle. Right. And so it was, it was an interesting thing, but she is so, she's so amazing. Annie Huzel. Uh, so Dragula, from the beginning, it's been open to folks of all genders, because the three principles are horror, filth, and glamour. And so, but it hasn't been until this season. So this season they had a a trans woman contestant, they had two non-binary contestants, and then they had Landon Sider, um, who I will not spoil things, but did very well in the competition, let's say. Um, And so the first drag king on a nationally televised competition in America. Um, Who is that? 
So it's brilliant, but they did a Dungeons and Drag Queens episode. <laughs> no, seriously. I love that title. Seriously. No, I'm just laughing at the title. Yeah, and Great. so and so they assigned everyone a class, a race in class. Mm-hmm. And so Landon, I'll show you the picture after we get after we're reward, uh, recording. So Landon started as an elf bar. She, they were an elf barbarian. Oh wow! And an so when they were like, "What character do you want to play?" I'm like, "An elf barbarian." Because I love Landon Cider so much. Um, and uh, so I started with that. But then as Charles and I got going on this Bottoms Dream idea, I'm like, because I was gone and Ivor, who play, was playing Birdie, who is the bard, another bard, was gone. And so we're like, we just went in the woods, Birdie, Venglin, and Birdie's dog, Rooster. And we came back. And Venglin now has like this Barry storyline where like he doesn't he doesn't want to kill anyone anymore. He just wants to be an actor. Yeah. Um, and it. so Love we did it. one session that was that, and then <laughs> this last weekend Charles was like, let's just let's just make you a bard. <laughs> and so like I'm like a dark elf bard. And that's great. I'm having so. Did you hear the Midwestern come out there from bard, bard a little, little bit. bit? I got excited. Yeah. Um, Bards are my favorite class. It's I it's so fun. It's so fun. And now mm-hmm. and now I feel like I really get it. And we're having. We're having a good time. There's um, some article or book or conference presentation about using D&D in theater settings. Um, I teach improv and we use it sometimes there. Oh, I would love to hear that because yeah. Charles and I are putting together a, a presentation a presentation that's like everything you've ever wanted to learn about gender diversity and we're afraid to ask oh, great. Uh, for the CU Diversity and Inclusion Summit that uses it as... Because it's sort of the thing of like you take people at their word, right? They build a character... Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, even though I know you are a human being named Woodzik, I'm going to treat you as though you are a dark elf bard named Fenguin. Right. And I think there's so much to be, there's so many parallels with, you know, given names versus chosen names and gender that folks were assigned at birth versus the pronouns that they use socially. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I hadn't even considered it from that point of view. I, I was thinking of it just as that. It's very easy to explain to students about goals and obstacles and expectations. Oh, yeah. It's There's so a easy clear to teach parallel. Them. Yeah. Because that dice roll gives them that I don't know if it's going to succeed or not yeah. and that that thing that we experience in real life that often young actors have trouble bringing onto stage, the illusion of the first time, the yes. not knowing what's as happening if. next yeah. as if testing each moment. So I didn't start playing D&D till I moved out here in 2014 and it yeah, every single time I play it, I learn more about theater. Or I learn more about myself, and myself, too, right? I'll tell you, man, there are some characters I've played in TNT who are more real to me than characters I spent six months playing on stage, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's helped me in, like, there have been interactions this week where I'm just like, I don't, I don't care. And, like, my autism gives me a hall pass that, like, my brain is wired differently. I seriously... I just do not care. Like, you can teach me how to care, and I'm a really good actor, but, like, right. I just don't care. So I'm going to tell you that... I and, and I think, you know, the dog... I think River, uh, as my service animal, is part of it, but I think D&D is also a part of it, too, because you get... When I was doing some stage combat one-on-one with Sam Egley, who's freaking fantastic, yeah. she reflected into me something that I've been doing all my life, but it wasn't until she really look deeply in my eyes and said it. She's like, you have to give yourself permission to learn. Right. Because something that's really common with, like, twice exceptional learners is, like, if I can't do it brilliantly right away, I'm not going to do it. Everybody wants to be Harry Potter, pick up the broom, and... 
you're immediately great on that firebolt. Um, and maybe we all, especially exceptional people, have things in their life that that's the case. Yeah. So yeah, it absolutely is the case. The, the smarter, the more exceptional, the more gifted of a learner you are, sometimes the harder that lesson is to embrace or to accept. Yeah. Uh, I know I hit that wall head first in my training. Yeah. 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 Do you want to talk about that a little bit? No. No, that's fine. No, but how do you how do you how do you deal with setting? One of the things that I think is the my mandate to teach my students is, as young actors, the difference between setting a boundary of I am uncomfortable, I am unwilling, like I am not able to perform what is being asked of me. Say, a romantic scene without a fight director. Sorry. A, intimacy director or uh, a moment of stage combat where you're asked to just wing it right like those things I mean you make that face but I I have been I was asked to do that in a professional production more recently than I'd like to admit yeah and so like the difference between setting a boundary and between a director sees something in you and they're trying to challenge you and push you in a growth mindset how do you determine the difference between those two things um you have to take people at their word, and you also have to be listening to the things they're not saying. Yes. Um, and that's actually true. That's actually one of the, my central precepts for dialect and text coaching, too. If you only listen to the words people are saying, you're actually not getting much of what they're communicating. There's a thing in intimacy direction, and I don't remember which school specifically it comes from, but rather than saying, are you comfortable, they say, are you confident? Because the yes. point of these scenes is not to be comfortable. Right. Um, you know, the maybe it is, maybe in that unique story, but theater is not about basking in comfort, but the actor has to feel safe. So are you confident in that you're set up to do this task with clear parameters, even if you're personally uncomfortable? To take it one way step further, but I'm a voice guy, so this is where my brain goes, Oftentimes in the process of reducing tension, releasing tension, acquiring new skills, um, people hit a point where their body is being called upon to do something new. And sometimes that can be physically uncomfortable. And in the moment, it can be very difficult to delineate whether it's, uh, I have very scientific terms for these. Ah, 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 it hurts so good. God, I don't know if this is helpful. And oh my God, something is horribly wrong. Stop, stop, stop. Um, Those two things I can't judge from the outside. Right. Those two things I can't be aware right. of. So all I can do is create conditions based on my personal experiences. Fortunately, the longer you teach, the more you can go, hey, you know, 15 years, I've seen this and this and this and this. Um, giving people outs. So a big thing I find is knowing that, that the actor can say stop at any time. Recent show I directed, I didn't bring in an intimacy director. Uh, we had two kisses in the play. And I had some training about how to go through a conversation. You know, there's no fondling. There's nothing romantic. There's, it's just a mwah, just a mwah, wrong word. But, um, so a simple closed mouth kiss. Simple closed mouth kiss. And one that we still wanted to talk to the actors about setting parameters, about when it's appropriate to do it, yes. how they feel comfortable. Yes. Um, one of my actors uh, was non-binary and the other is a traditional cis female. And, you know, these are, there were no issues because of that. But I wanted to create space in case anyone wanted to say anything. I met with the actors individually. I met with them as a group. Um, to give them space to express any misgivings or things that are uncomfortable and can't be resolved versus things that are uncomfortable now. Um, 
It's a, I wish I had a silver bullet or a panacea, um, but much like the process of coaching and working with actors, everyone's situation is a little different. How do you experience it from the inside as an actor yourself? I have no shame. <laughs> so when, I hope I'm not telling tales out of school, but when Reagan and I were doing Into the Woods, we had this conversation about Cinderella's Prince. And, you were so and, good. Oh, that's very kind of you. I, I love working with Reagan and I'll do it anytime I can. But um, she's like, let's go for it. Because we don't often see disabled people Right. Making out. In a we, way that's not to elicit pity, right? Yeah, or it's comical. Right. You know? And, and maybe, maybe low testosterone male that I am, swooping Reagan out of the chair, could have been potentially comical. Um, but in the moment, we played it very seriously. We trusted each other. We talked about it. Uh, I was married at the time, and so she's like, is this going to interfere with your relationship or any of that? And um, we got to the point where... My goal was, oh, well, if, as long as I know Reagan personally and we can have conversations about me going, you know what, today I'm feeling a little yeah. vulnerable, a little yeah. depressed, can we mark it? Yeah. Whether that's the physical lift, whether that's the right. kiss. Right, And that's the thing about family is that communication is baked On point. In. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. If every theater company could communicate as well as family, we would be in a utopia. Um, <laughs> but there's also some of it that's just like, yeah, I... Some of it's male privilege. I yeah. don't feel, I've never been put in a situation, even if I'm playing somebody who's gay and in the more, is this appropriate to say, the more receptive role in the sure. relationship? Um, you know, I, I have no issue with that. Um, because it's never, because I don't have the same uh, privilege, I don't have the same socio-issues about having people view me a certain way. So since I don't have that framework personally of going, I'm worried about hurting myself on stage, because I'm not, uh, or I'm worried about something physically, I mean, in Jekyll and Hyde, I, I had to rape Lauren Sheely on stage, and it was very uncomfortable, but we, again, my connection with Lauren, my connection with the director, we worked it out, and even though in the moment I could go, God, this act feels abhorrent, ugh, this right, is, right. Ugh, 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 we had found a way for me to take those feelings and actually put it in the moment yeah and then let Jekyll process it yeah. in the confrontation later so finding ways to integrate it with the character's experience finding ways to integrate it with the personal relationship I already have with the person on stage and I really think if your communication skills are on point theater people supposedly have a reputation of being able to talk through anything right and up until a couple of weeks ago I, I believed that to be the case but I still hold hope that for the vast majority of us that is the case and especially with the advent well of said. intimacy direction and new language and, you know, it, it's a tangential point, but in voice and speech and text, we're moving away from prescriptive models that mm. prize white American good neutral speech as the target everyone should be aiming for. There, there's a kind of movement in the theater I'm perceiving about bringing in the people who for much of the 20th century, their training would have been can't you talk more like him? Can't you just talk more like her? Can't you just look more like them? Because when people say, I mean, we code, when we tell people to be more professional, we're really saying it would be a lot more convenient for me if you adhered to a white colonialist, colonialist ideal, That's right? certainly a possible interpretation, <laughs> depending on the circumstance. Right. Depending on the circumstance. Um, you know, I, I, I have a colleague who's terrible at spelling. 
-hmm. And when they turn in a form and there's typos all over it, I don't feel terribly imperialist going, hey, can you correct? Yeah. That's a semicolon, not a comma. Sure. Um, But, and if I'm doing a production of The Importance of Being Earnest, and I have an actor who's saying, let me ask you a question, and that doesn't fit in my concept, then I'm very comfortable going, hey, 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 say whatever you want at Walgreens, but in this scene... I need to ask. This is what's required. Ask, not yeah. because it's right or good or proper. But your point is well taken. And the speech training for so long was about going, get rid of the things that identify you and make you unique. <laughs> and embrace instead what some white people arbitrarily decided is beautiful. Yeah. Um, and so I'm seeing in the voice and speech movement that being rejected against. And I see a tangential relation. Perhaps it's just my bias but in the disability movement, in bringing in um, different genders and races and breaking open this nut of identity yeah. in casting and how we, who we see on stage and how we see people on stage. I feel like we're training audiences and I feel like audiences are responding. So it's a very exciting time. You gotta time. give audiences more credit. Right? They'll follow you, man, as long as your concept makes sense and you can lead them from A to B to C. You're going to have a few people who are dicks. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes the letters they write are very entertaining to read. And sometimes we post them on call boards. But, ah! uh, but by and large, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Give audiences credit. Lead them down the path you want to go. And they'll meet you. Um, so again, bird walk, that's tangentially related. But I'm seeing more accessibility. I'm seeing more diversity in every way in the theater right now. That's and I think so especially the Denver theater community is woke as... Can I say it? Can yeah, I say it? it's your fuck. podcast. Yeah, I swore before. Woke <laughs> as fuck. Um, and I really... I don't know. I, I'm enamored of the Denver Theater Center. It's I, The Denver Theater scene. fantastic, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I feel such a privilege to be able to know these people and work with these oh people. Oh my gosh, have you seen The Secretary at Curious yet? I saw it a couple weeks ago. My God. Right? Right? The other podcast that I haven't edited up yet is yeah. Emma's. And oh my god, I would watch Emma Messenger read the phone book. I know, that's I... what I was telling her. I'm like, I'm like, I would just watch you do nothing. I would, I would pay $100 to watch you do nothing for two hours. Mm-hmm. Like, to mm-hmm. just, I would watch you sleep for two hours. I'd be like, right? I didn't say that to her, that sounds creepy. But she's just one of those amazing actors where you're just... And um, I'm a huge fan of um, Adeline. I'm huge. Is that she pronounced? Addie. Yeah, Addie. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Charles's partner. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of. I'd never seen um, Kathleen Brady before. Oh my! That's God. the first time seeing her work. I'm a huge fan of Leslie. So yeah, yes, yeah, all and of course I love Christy Montour Larson. So <laughs> Karen Slack as the right mom. Another one. I, another person. I don't. I couldn't recall ever seeing them on stage before. Yeah, but my. God. She disappears into roles. Yeah, yeah. she just completely. Yeah. Is one of those incognito actors. Well, obviously, we're going to have to have you back on the podcast. Oh, my God. That would be wonderful. Um, but we've reached out time. We've reached out time for today. But I like to ask actors, if you believe in a bucket list, what are some of the roles that hmm. you want to play next? You know, I'm very lucky in that I've checked off all of them except one. Which is? Leo Franken Parade. Yeah. Um, that's the only one left. That's the only one left. Um, we need to talk, because the spark... Have you heard of the spark? No. 
So Marla Schultz has this, created this model where it's intergenerational. And so mm-hmm. I got to play Ram's dad and Heather's. I had oh, a blast. Right, right. But they're able, they have, I think they're able to do one equity contract per show, but they're doing Parade next summer. Oh, lovely. So you could definitely submit. Anyway, yeah. but maybe I fixed it right there, Jeff. Done. Done. Yeah. No, I lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee for a while, and there were a lot of options to get to play some roles. Like, I'd always wanted to do falsettos, and I was still 10 years too young, but I got to do it! Right, 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 right. Uh, Sunday in the Park with George, I got to do in grad school. So those were falsettos, Sunday, and Parade were my top three. I got two of them. And, you know, I love Floyd Collins with all my heart, but I can't say it's a bucket list show. It's just a show I really want someone to do. Right. And then all other shows, you know, like Twelfth Night, Tempest, the shows I love, there's not so much roles. I would play any part in Twelfth Night. Yeah. Um, the Drowsy Chaperone. I would play same. any part in The Drowsy yeah. Chaperone. Yeah. So the other shows I love, uh, it's not about a specific track or role. Yeah. yeah. What about you? Me? Oh. Oh, don't make me talk about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I mean, Bottom is really up for me right now yeah. because... Um, I'm just really fascinated by that character because I think there is the potential. Oh, yeah, because there's, yeah, of, of going back. He more than anyone in Shakespeare, the nurse a little bit too. I think there's this opportunity for like a retroactive neurodiverse dramaturgy. And oh, I just, yeah. I think we need to do more of that. Like, I, th- I think I've decided this weekend what I want my dissertation to be, though. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to do it here um, because it's pretty performance-based. But I got to see part of... River and I went to see part of uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's The National Theatre Lives, the original script of Fleabag, which is a one-person show. show. And it's just her and a chair and some sound cues. And I'm like, this is what it feels like to be autistic. You're like, Mm. you're like saying every single thing that happened and sometimes you're speaking as the other people and sometimes you're hearing the other person's voice and I just I want to do an annotated version of the script where I'm like okay that's masculine okay that's echolalia okay that's like yeah. like basically doing an annotation and then memorizing the whole thing myself sure. and just performing it without comment and, and the only thing that would be different um, and I'll hit you up for the accents if we decide to, sure, sure. Yes, <laughs> in, in this perfect world where I have all the money to hire all the people I want to do for this, because the tech's going to be non-existent, basically. Like, I want to engineer it so, like, I could do the sound cues with a foot pedal, mm. so I could, oh, like, I could be cool doing it all myself. Um, but then, yeah, the only thing that would be different is it would just be me, so it would be a disabled trans actor, but presented without comment, and uh, yeah. there would be a chair and there would be a dog bed and I would do it with my service dog. Man. Like, oh. but I just, I think mm. as you were saying, like, I just, I wish, do you wish sometimes that the industry or academia could catch up to how fast you think? Yeah. 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 I mean, simply put, yeah, academia by its, there, there are so many virtues. I've wanted to be in academia my whole life. I have no regrets Same. being in it. Yeah. But it's a, it's a battleship, not a speedboat. To make changes takes for fucking ever. Yeah. Everything has to go through 12 committees, and it just takes one asshole who doesn't understand yeah. to throw a wrench in the whole process. Um, and, and that's okay, but no, that's why it's an unequivocal yes. Yes, I wish we went faster. Yes, I wish we were more attuned to the professional industry. Um, I think the more faculty are 
have their foot in the waters of the professional industry, the faster things change. Yeah. It can be very frustrating working in a department where not a lot of people step outside their bubble. Yeah. This is what I learned in the 70s, and this is what we'll do today. Um, you have got to watch Amy Walker's 21 accent. I love Amy Walker. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. Amy Walker? I know her as a coach. I know her as a YouTube celebrity. I do not know her as a See, person. I lived on Woodby Island. Amy Walker's <gasps> from Woodby Island. Oh. Amy Walker beat me out for Nancy in uh, no. Oliver. Oh, oh yeah. no. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. But then there's also Straw Culture's parody of 21 Accents, which is just a hot pink straw and a little fake uh, dress. <laughs> I'm Amy Walker! <laughs> it's so good. I now, have the biggest crush on Amy Walker. For oh my god! I will. I will introduce the two oh of you god. if you want me to. We're Facebook friends. Um, <laughs> I know. It's like when I met Brandy Carlisle at my old job, and I was just like, "Holy shit, you're Brandy Carlisle!" And I was like, "I'm so sorry. How may I help you?" Right. Right. Uh, um, can you take? Speaking of music, yeah. now that we're really at our our limit, can you take us out? Could Could you sing us a little something? You know, I'm just a little under the weather. Then I will sing you. I will sing you you one of my favorite songs from Parade. I would love to hear it. A little bit. (gasps) Oh, great. All right. All right. River, I'm going to sing to you. You don't know this man. You don't know a thing. You come here with your horrifying stories, your contemptible conceits, and you say you understand how a man's heart beats. And that's as much yeah, as I remember. that was delightful. <laughs> Thank you. I love that song. That's the best thing I heard all day. Oh, Jeff. Well, it. Jeff Parker, you're gonna have to come back. Please and talk I would more love to. I would love to on the podcast. To. I have this idea of like this mega D and D game because I have one group of friends who Don't did this like me. Shakespearean like. Elsinore's throne is vacant. You all get assigned someone. So I want to do like a day-long LARP, but that is like you, me, Addie, Charles, Amanda Rose, Kevin Rich. So it's like um, someday this will happen. I will make it so. Uh, thank you so much for being a Thanks guest. Thanks for having me. It was all my right. absolute pleasure. Friends, go see, if you can get a ticket. Yeah, right. If you can get a ticket. I think there's like 20 left. Go <laughs> see Murder on the Orient Express, directed by Jeff Kent, with the beautifully, wonderfully, amazingly talented Kevin Rich in the ro- mm-hmm. role of Hercule Poirot. Voice and dialect work by Mr. Jeff Parker. That's me. All right. Uh, make art. Be cool, kittens. Be kind. <laughs>